0: Hello, everyone. Thank you for coming and and um, yeah I mean that's such a such a kind and generous way of of putting um, uh, that idea of grace in translation I look at it more of confusion right and and how translation works for me of trying to identify some some order. Uh, work away from the confusing element uh, there 's a poem by a guy i 'm going to read from tonight, Juan Antonio Gonzalez Iglesias, a Spanish poet who 's a classic scholar teaches at the University of Salamanca that it's it 's arte poetica si no quieres quedarte a mirar la tormenta yo la miro por ti and I think about what that what that language or what the, the intent of such a poem is in that you know, it's doing this job for someone else who can't do it. Right? And I think that that's, that's our job as artists, as writers, translators, you know, people who are engaged with the world. And that's my hope, or my aspiration, or my intention, anyway, with translations and even writing poems. So I'm going to read uh, some poems from this book uh, that Andrea mentioned, and uh, Real Cause for Your Absence, a few translations from some different projects, and then end with some new poems from a new collection that I've been working on. So this, this poem is called Drawing of a Woman's Silence. Two nights after she stopped speaking, my wife hums three bars in her sleep, as if she were thirty years older, alone and washing clothes outside, not as some kind of punishment or indication of her line's poverty, even before the wars in her country. And though hunger was like a cloth everyone wore in that town, music was not an item that could be confiscated. Removed by the fascists, or the nuns, or the wealthy families that always seem to be on the right side. This night, seven days before she will speak again, the road she must be walking inside her sleep is smooth and inclines easily into the mountains with a view over the sea. Nothing about her within this dark room indicates I'm there with her standing on an edge confused by wind and her presence or that I have ever been born, or that she's learned to speak my language, and I hers. Tonight, neither can decipher the other's tongue. Our ancestry accounts for us. Some border-crossing customs office floor is littered with pages of our unpronounceable names. This next poem, um... I, hadn't read it, I haven't read it for a while, and I was looking at it a little bit earlier, and it seems to be... Well, I, I, don't, I don't need to tell you, I guess. I hope that the poem's going to do it, and maybe you'll make a connection. Becoming a Crow. The crows on the porch roof tap my window, shout, laugh, list reasons to listen. One nods at the man who curses the snow on his car, Another at the mother angry with her child for stopping to catch snowflakes on his tongue. Another bobs his head. Becoming darkness, he says. Letting the light bleed out of you is how you do this. Today I'm trying to pull out my arms, my toes, and my ears. Inside me a crow waits to emerge. I have gravel in my throat. My feet shrivel and split, raw bone tapping and clicking on the floor when I walk to the window. I feel wings flap around me when I walk past my mother's house, when I see a nibbled slice of pizza on the roadside. I fly across the room and bounce off the wall. I get strength from black corners, from undersides of tables and bookshelves. My eyes drain into my nose. My teeth pull up to form my blue-black beak. Arc, 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 arc. I'm becoming a crow. The murder waits outside my window. They're not laughing. My arms have broken off at the elbow. All the black nights I've walked, consumed with my feet, seep into my skin, turn my hair to opaque feathers. I'm learning to squat and cackle at the men on the street, this one with the hat, stares and smokes. I'm learning to read the fear in his body. My brothers tell me I was a fool, but so is everyone else. They watch the man on a ladder, the jet trails, the boy burning a doll with a match. It's part of, they bark, your nature. I thought these twigs would keep me awake. But it's the laughter that bothers me the most. I've heard this is the worst part for all of us. In the morning I fly north to chase the fence line or follow the rivers. I look for stones and count grass blades. Dusk turns me south. Tiny hands have tied failing light to my tail feathers. All of us keep our beaks open and fly. I'm most comfortable then, my wings touching the sky, the growing dark massaging night into each beat, like the ointment my wife rubbed into my back when I was a man. She's down there on East Market, her eyes refusing to turn black, her steps sifting the floor dust. She paces from one room to the next, holding her hands over her heart to keep it from splitting again. Um, so I'm going to read one more from this and this is a poem that, um, I started, I think I, well, yeah, I think part of it started, um, at a time when I was thinking about growing up on, in the Midwest on a farm and, you know, what I learned and what I thought I learned, what I didn't know, what I knew, all of this stuff. Trying to make sense of, you know, that kind of life that one wants to really leave behind. Um, or thinks that I thought, you know, I never am going to value growing up on a farm. And then suddenly I did. Right? Something made sense. Seeing the failures of other people, possibly, did it? Neighbors. The neighbors are always failing. Colony collapse disorder. The neighbors have a zucchini patch, but they're city folk, and forgot to plant the seeds together. One plant flowered, and the other didn't. After two years, I've forgotten the smell of my father's collar when we embrace. His morning voice thrum as the coffee brews, and he reads the paper and waits for me to wake. No, to forget would mean knowing, and they didn't know what to plant or look for to begin with. They saw one yellow fist of flower bloomed, considered the beauty of yellow and how nature can be ugly, too, and leave another plant sterile half a yard away. Half a country away this man is wilting in a house I haven't seen. To say I didn't know what to look for would be as close as a lie to a lie as I could stand. Or that I forgot proximity. Or that a home blooms because of the people who enter it. Once I woke to his face, staring at mine. I wish I had been four and thought every father did this. But I was an exhausted 27, losing a wife and sleeping off the morning maintenance shift on his couch. We didn't speak. I closed my eyes and his pencil pulled the lines and shade of my face onto a page. Maybe the cause is as simple as fewer bees this year. Or too many phone waves confuse them, and they can't find their hive, and fly in endless turns. The dahlias, mums, and petunias are exhausted bloomers. Like a horse, ridden so hard for home, it gets you there, but its wind is broken, which means its breath can't fill its lungs. Even walking to the water tank exhausts it. It's alive, but there's no beauty there, but the beauty of the dying. I've read what to do when flowers cannot be natural and don't bloom on one side of a yard, but I don't know where to find how a son should learn to care for his father. When. My father's wife calls on Saturdays and describes the white petals that have opened over his eyes. And, as if someone had put up a fence across the yard of his brain, the words he says that once were clear and crisp as January frost on glass are not ones he means. They're blocked, bent, refracted light falling through. Dialects disappear. Your finger must become the bee, wander into that sticky womb the petals make, linger there, poke, touch, wriggle, but be gentle, like a nod to a lover in a crowded room to join you outside in a closet down the hall, or some benign place that becomes forbidden when you are two. Dialing a phone is never enough. Distance is an ugly relative and shouldn't decide why one goes home or when. I can't see a thing in the darkness of the receiver's space when this man's voice tells me about paint, light, the lines of a woman's face. How he once wanted to touch a cheek Caravaggio seemed to create like God created Eve's. Kiss the layers of paint on panel. But his was a whisper in a vast gap between us. It's tight in the space his voice creates. Caravaggio removed, and I don't know how to wiggle my way in to make a change. As soon as I enter that realm one shouldn't fill, I know there's a consequence. For every action, there's an opposite action. You enter your lover, breath comes out. A prickle of dust trickles from your finger and paints the delicate bud asleep inside the flower skin. I wait. Better to act like a bee and not think about the work my hands do, haven't done, but keep moving, looking for flowers, for the soft heart of color stuck inside pollen, or whatever miracle of dust expanding to life, and look for that body my hands can mend." Okay. Um, So that poem that that I recited earlier in Spanish is, if you don't want to stay and watch the storm. I will watch it for you, right? Um, to think of what this, what one of the things that attracted me to Juan Antonio Gonzalez Iglesias is that this is a someone who is is firmly grounded in two different worlds: the classical world and the present. And a lot of these poems are referencing the past, referencing classical figures. In fact, he uses some Latin in them and um, a lot of uh, uh, Roman, Roman mythology. And um, in the Spanish edition, he just said, you know, you have to figure that out yourself. But in English, my editor said, make notes, help people out, right? But I didn't do all of that. Um, I'm just going to read, I think, maybe one poem of his. If I wake in the middle of the night. If I wake in the middle of the night, touching you is enough. Your young man's body breathes at my side like a free animal. This musculature, constructed out of constant training, rests by my side the tennis player, triumphant on the public courts every Tuesday, the artist, the poet, the one who writes his dissertation, the one who designs, the one who sings, the one who dances, the one who smiles dazzlingly, the one who remains silent, the one who reads, the one who struggles with me in bed, the companion of all my hours, has in these moments a different perfection, the happiness, Grace, that in the sun-filled hours composes the beauty that moves, is now solved in equilibrium. I like to be in the dark. Nothing exists but your temperature, summarizing the true facts of the world. In the middle of the night, I suddenly have an indeterminate number of minutes to love you, with the bewilderment, lucidity, of someone wide awake. I feel the good inside your skin. The rhythm of your breath sings to me the simplest music. It indicates my place in the cosmos. Beside your virile serenity, I begin to fall asleep, embracing your body. If I wake in the middle of the night, touching you is enough. There's another poem I just remembered that I think I have to read because it's October. October, month without gods. The Japanese think this is the month without gods. They celebrate it this way. They don't alliterate October with gold falling from the fragile trees or with revolutions that changed history. October, like a truce, like an absence of everything that exceeds limits. May it be for us liberation, because now they don't exhibit the relentless naked gods of summer, the too many gods, and so much remains for the child of winter to be born. And our sight doesn't reach any further from this mouth, from this month of distances, month of faraways, imperfect, attained, fortuitous. If only it would be like this for us, without the eight million gods that hide in the city or in the forest, the scales coincide with our statures. Let us be carried away by our premonitions. Let us write things with small letters. Let us celebrate October for its absence of gods. Let us enjoy its name because it is only a number in a truncated series. And forgotten, it is October. We have 30 days all to ourselves. Okay, I'm gonna read um, a couple pieces from from a new project. I'm working on. This is a um, a guy. A, he's he's a Mexican writer, but he was born in Egypt to Italian parents, and lived in Egypt for five years, and then moved to Italy and was in Italy for another ten years. Um, so his first his first language is is Italian. Um, but then he and his family moved to Mexico where he still lives. He teaches in the, in the, um, the University of Mexico City. And, um, he's a novelist, short story writer, poet, essayist. And this particular book is a, is a collection of short prose pieces that are all in Spanish, all exactly 2,000 characters long. And they're written with that exact length because they were for a newspaper column um, out of the, uh, the Buenos Aires newspaper Clarín. So they appeared every other week. There are a whole series of these. And the, the title of the book is Mother Tongue. Right? And what, what attracts me to this is that I, that I always think about the newspapers in this country and how really they're pretty boring. Right? When you think of the... I mean, we get the news, of course. I mean, that's what a newspaper is supposed to do. But just about any other place in the world, or at least the languages that I speak, that I can read these newspapers, you see a novelist or a poet or an essayist writing a column about something that's connected to the world. What's going on? Right? You have these these artists and intellectuals who are discussing, you know, how how foreign policy is connected to literature or, or stealing or, I don't know, they're making the connections that we make, right? So I'm going to read a couple of these, and the first one is titled, um, Scrittore Traditore. And if, I don't, do any of you speak Italian? No? Yes, one in the back, all right. So this, I mean, this is uh, in the darkness of the back. Um, I mean this is it's also connected to the translation, this idea of writer, translator, but also traitor, right? Translator, traitor. Where when you translate something, you you become this it's a traitorous act because you're you're not you're doing an injustice to the literature. Scrittore, traditore. When I was seven years old, I fell in love with a classmate I could have fallen in love with a girl, but in my school the boys and girls were, se- were separated, so I fell in love with the only girl within my reach, and she was Massimo P., a timid boy of extremely delicate features, who spoke with no one. It was the first day of school. We were at, research, we were at recess, and Massimo came up to me and asked if I could tie his shoelaces. He looked defenseless in the midst of so many shouting boys running around the playground, and I fell in love with his fragile beauty. You look like a girl, I told him, and he, perhaps accustomed to hearing such a thing, only smiled. Recess ended, and we returned to the classroom. His seat was two rows away from mine, but not once did he turn his head to look at me, and I thought that he had forgotten about me altogether. Then it was reading time. Each of us had to read a few fragments of a story from our book, out loud. A few boys read before the teacher pointed at Massimo. He pressed his finger at the beginning of the paragraph and uttered the first word. More specifically, he stuttered it. He stumbled over the second word, and then over the next. He read so badly that he couldn't finish the sentence. The teacher lost his patience and told another student to continue reading. I accepted the sad truth. Massimo P., despite his angelic appearance, was a numbskull. Then it was my turn. I made a sudden decision to read worse than Massimo. I think if I had done it, today I would be a better man than I am. If there are crucial experiences in our childhood, this was one of them, because after intentionally making mistakes across the first line, I realized I couldn't continue to destroy one more word. And I began to read with such fluency that the teacher praised me with a nod of admiration. This is what good reading is, he said. And I think it was then that I understood that my vocation would be to write books. And at almost the same time, I had my first taste of betrayal. I've always thought that these two vocations are inextricably linked. Poets do not write books. I'm assuming there are some poets in here short story writers as well, prose writers here? None? Okay, well, the rest of you write books, but poets do not. Poets do not write books. I published my first novel when I was 55 years old, and when I gave a copy to my mother, she exclaimed, finally, a book. What about the other books? I asked her, referring to the 10 volumes of short stories and poetry that I had already published. I love them, she said quickly, and I guessed the rest of that sentence she did not want to say. But they aren't actual books. After that first moment of anger, I thought she was probably right. Books, what we call books, are novels, memoirs, scientific and philosophical essays. For convenience sake, we call stories and poems gathered in a single volume books as well, even though we know that the fate of each poem and each story is to fend for itself outside of the book that includes it, which seems like a momentary shelter. Stories and poems retain a connection with the oral tradition that other genres lack. In particular, poetry has less to do with writing than with with breath, with voice and sound. You can even say that poetry is written in spite of writing in defiance of the deafness of writing, against the arrhythmia and the covering of writing. So, giving a title to a collection of poems, which is a silencing gesture, is to ignore the anti-bookish and anti-official nature of poetry. We would have to go back to the 19th century habit of putting the words poems on the covers of books of poetry and the word tales or stories on books of stories. Because poets and the story writers are not writers, although they believe they are. Poetry, especially, with its attachment to repetition and memorization, expresses its aversion to the book. Its persistence in our culture can be seen as a signal that the individual is reluctant to dispense with his own breath. Books, with their prodigious artificiality, with their intense spiritual conduct, have dimmed our spirit to the implausible. Lines of prose methodically aligned propose an artificial respiration. In contrast, lines of poetry, which defy margins, breathe life into our last breath, our lost breath. All right. That's enough of Fabio. I'm going to read just a few more poems from this new collection. Um, are you familiar with a goathead? Do you know what a goathead is? The little Burr? Yeah? I mean, they, yeah, from Texas. If you're from Texas, you see them, you feel them. You don't walk around barefoot in a yard because they'll get into your, they'll stick inside you. Um, So this poem is titled Goathead, and there's a town here called Muleshoe. It's a, I go to this town because I like the name, Muleshoe. But, it's also a nature preserve. And I have a dog. I don't have any kids, but I have a new dog. And I'm assuming that, I mean, I don't know, those people who have kids, it seems like it's this new thing for you and you write about it because it's out of the ordinary, maybe. For me, this dog is out of the ordinary and she's a little fucker most of the time. But, um, sorry. Shouldn't have said it that way, but you'll see that she is. Goathead. The plague lies under sumac, under foxtail, under mule shoes, other weeds, the dog tamps down in her forth and backside sauntering. Morning, she shouts at the dark, then looks out of the dark at me, desk-bound and comes, climbs the chair and cat-like needs my lap. Curls and pushes some unseen into me. It's not why I look up foxtail, but why I read on about weeds and dogs and danger and believe she too could die from what creeps forward, never back. Might be the cause of her sneeze, sometimes in my face. I pick her up and place her behind me, lean forward in my chair so she can feel my back. She likes touch must call it cozy in her tongue. Every good feeling carries excessive weight, carries some kind of suffer. This thing I love could be my bag, a living thing mine. I own her. Men used to own other men. My stepfather told me that one time. I own you, boy, thumbing I am's on my skull. You're mine until you leave this house. I own you, your time, all you will do, mine. Variation, a gesture to shift, and men own wives still. Not over there where language sounds like anger, but here I've heard, she's my woman, and I own plenty. This pen, this cup, the snot in a wad of tissue the dog tries to eat from my pocket so much paper a forest presses the shelves and tabletop down more than gravity that doesn't make sense gravity to be weighed down the implication of falling back to earth to something heavier than what is not my dog to me my arms to the back of my chair she wants to occupy though her pad is empty at my feet it's about touch Touch at 4 a.m. when the night seems long and she's alone. I'm alone too, but forget that. Forget that one thing so filled with another the outside seems occupied. Infested, as she was with goat heads. So I picked her up, carried her, and plucked them from her coat. They drew my blood. They carried it falling to the ground. My blood, a pollen for the dangerous seeds I dropped. A sprig of pain will grow from there. A vast national park of pain is growing in this country where I live. No one I know tends or nurtures it, pain I mean, but someone does, someone always does. Self-portrait in dark interior. There's a lot of dark. I knew that, but I'm seeing it even more. Self-Portrait in Dark Interior for Patrick Rosal. Before ache never seemed long like a tunnel under the city flaring off another tunnel the subway rumbled against, or the dark jutting out of daylight's reach up on 187th, when I know some part is inhabited and that habitation looks out at me. I know every uninhabited place lodges a thing looking out. I have grown into a life become middle-aged, deepened into the hidden inside, like the day into its other half, or a memory of a woman's silence after she didn't want to be kissed. And I wonder when rot began, and I wonder what other ideas the cabbie had when he turned into the truck's path. Sometimes silence is emptier than some oaths I have made. Hours change habits and late seeps into early and rain, in another part of this country, suddenly, heavily falls, flattens, seams, frays and splits them like I did away from a lover once in a city where both of us were foreign. And she, the only person who recognized me for a thousand miles, the only one who knew where I was, and then not. This ache is empty like that. Um, I spend quite a bit of time abroad Um, and I feel like I get more news from foreign papers than I do from the papers that I you know from this country Um, and this this is um, news right American selfie who is the man for can only be a man my head thinks that would touch a child That would strip that child that would bend that child over and would bend that child over and pierce her and him and him and her and would turn to this and that child's mother who held by straps in a chair would become as lifeless as chairs as empty as chairs other mothers refuse to sit in but will and will be forced to watch quietly like we do at the movies or in a museum the children who must now be silently heaved having wept dry the tear pools inside them but for the camera in the hands of another man behind those mothers taking pictures, snapshots, souvenirs to take home to their friends, family, and keep in a shoebox that one day, when that man is old, has forgotten what he has done, because this breed of man can forget what he has done, will hold his children's children, who one day find that curiously stuffed box in a closet, if closets and shoeboxes and photographs will exist then, and pull it down in their boredom, open it and see what their grandfather, what his friends and their granddaddy did in their boredom in the name of their country over there when the war was on and when the country said we must fight for freedom who will they become? What will they become, those children when there are no more children and can make decisions men make? Alright, I'm going to read this one more poem. Euphoric. Um... Yeah, fork. Maybe I should praise the mapped green, vast, where the road I follow disappears and the GPS triangle that is me begins to twirl, as if I'm not the only one confused, but then follows me into the expanse in front of the car, in front of the declining sun, that in four hours more or less will glint the humping pump jacks, some oil shade of rusted, and I hope to be gone by then. To have found some paved road, I have never reached down to touch, but will to thank it and whisper thank you like some hostage newly freed and returned to her home. Kissed the tarmac in front of cameras before the neck of her wife or cheek of her father or saluted some officer obliged to welcome her home. Or I would better show my gratitude today by pulling down the six coyote carcasses lining the property fence I shouldn't have entered thinking it was a new way home. Past the gravel pit where kids from Rawls must come to drink and fuck maybe their oldest cousins to escape their marriages or to shoot cans or the sky and someone got so pissed drunk he took off that pair of green denim jeans so perfect on the rack at Sears and less so each minute out here on a road without a name, a path really, and left them crumpled on the crumpled dirt the only green in the sea, this ocean of red, earth, some still think what they do is farm, and therefore spend their money and hours disking back and forth across the fields, like boats trawling the and Sea, or some astronaut on Mars who lost a special tool in what wouldn't be called a field but something else, interstellar and spatial, like Terra Vasta, and this is Texas, so that might work, because the ground is vast and about to blow around your face, and I have too many lines on mine, and I haven't killed anything with four legs and fur in years. The last night I misstepped again, and my friend, the salamander, who clung to the wall near the kitchen and watched me pass every day since July, jumped beneath a shoe and stayed kissing the floor, as if euphoric having finally been released from the wall. And I buried him in the trash heap I call compost. And I should drive back east to find those carcasses bristling now in the evening wind and help them back to the euphoric ground that adored them and kissed each of their trotting feet. Thanks for your time.